It's a fact. Life can be hard. And dealing with its challenges is no mean feat. The ability to recover quickly in the face of adversity is known as resilience and can be our best ally during times of stress. Welcome to The Resilient Road. In this series, we look at human stories of perseverance, exploring what makes someone resilient and what we can all do to help nurture this process in our own lives. My name is Sinead. I am joined by my colleague Elle. Hello. And my other colleague, Brian. Hi. We're part of Positive Group, a team who uses psychology and neuroscience to help people make positive changes to improve their health and well-being. In this episode, we're looking at the question, how does self-belief and the support of others help build resilience? Through the eyes of pioneering sailor Tracy Edwards. It's hard for me to explain to you the absolute surety that people had that we couldn't sail this boat around the world and, and that we would die. Oh, you know, the girls, they're trying to get round in one piece, you know, and oh, bless. If we didn't succeed, the next woman that came after us would have to fight not only her own battle, but ours as well. And we would have totally let her down. Today, we're going to be talking about the story of Tracy Edwards, who was famous because she skippered the first all-female crew to uh, sail around the world. Elle. Brian, have you had any sealing experience? <laughs> <laughs> I've had quite a bit and uh, it's not been good. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's um, I love sailing when it's fine weather and you're on a broad reach and you drop anchor and have a nice gin and tonic. But uh, I'm not good in rough weather. Um, I've done, in terms of serious sailing, so we're talking beyond the East London canals in a canal boat on a Hindu. Yes, beyond that. Um <laughs> My good friend has a boat and um, I've been on his big boat. I can see how people get addicted to it because it's so amazing to make this huge vessel travel through water. But I found the whole thing slightly scary. I uh, I have to say I'm not a very strong or confident swimmer. And mm. for me, the idea of sailing and just the vastness of the ocean and that kind of sense of being alone and very much at the mercy of the elements, I find it absolutely terrifying, really terrifying. So I'm really interested in hearing Tracy's story and picking out some resilience tips for myself. My name is Tracy Edwards and I'm an around-the-world sailor and social activist. Well, how I got into sailing is it was really an escape. I was just a revolting, horrible teenager and I was expelled from school when I was 15. No qualifications, no exams, not a clue what I was going to do. And uh, my poor mother... When I was expelled, I think felt that travel would be a very good thing for me to be as far away from the people that I was hanging out with at the time and really encouraged me to go backpacking. I ended up working in a bar in Greece. A guy came in one night and said, do you want to work on my yacht? So at the age of 17, I was like, yeah, OK. From the first day I got on that boat, I thought... I feel like me for the first time. You know, I'd spent so much of my life on the outside looking in. It was just feeling completely at home. I'd never, 
ever felt so at ease around this particular type of person that sails and, and we were a real mishmash. Within about four days, I knew that's what I was going to do for the rest of my life. I kind of learned to sail as I went along and did a bit of cruising, a bit of racing, some deliveries, got a lot of miles under my belt, and that's how you learn. You just pick stuff up. I had great skippers, really great mentors, who would not let me rest on my laurels. They would push me that little bit further, that little bit further. So when I learned to navigate, it was on my second transatlantic, and the guy said to me, can you navigate? And I said, I was expelled before long division. You always can do more than you think you can. And, and something that does look complicated from the outside is not that complicated. So in two days, he taught me to navigate. For me, it wasn't a job. It wasn't something I got in and out of. I never went ashore. I mean, I was always on a boat, going somewhere, doing something, racing, sailing, cruising. I first met King Hussein when I was stewardessing on a boat in Martha's Vineyard. I was washing up after lunch and I felt someone standing next to me and I turned round and it was King Hussein with a dishcloth in his hand. <laughs> and so I looked at him in sort of horror and said, you, you can't do that. He said, I can do anything, I'm King. And we ended up talking and we just clicked. We had a joint love of navigation. He was also a people collector and that's how he collected me. One of the greatest men that ever lived. Changed my whole life forever. The 85-86 Whitbread for me was my big chance to learn, really, about ocean racing. And a couple of other people have said, you are going to love this. So you race around the world, it's about 37,000 miles, four legs and three stopovers. As the only girl on a boat called Atlantic Privateer with 17 men, wow, that was a long nine months. No one wanted me on the boat. They didn't want a girl on the boat. They were horrified, horrified that they were the only professional sailing team with a girl. <laughs> I threw myself into it wholeheartedly. I just absorbed this stuff. Yes, I was a cook, but I'd taken part as well in the sailing. Once I'd sort of been accepted that I wasn't on board as some sort of gimmick, they were wonderful. And I suddenly ended up with 17 older brothers, which made dating really hard, I can tell you. When I finished the 85-86 race, I couldn't believe that out of 230 crew, there were only four girls. I was like, wait a minute, this is ridiculous. And I knew that even though I'd been accepted on Atlantic Privateer, I was still a cook. I instinctively understood that the only way that men would ever think that girls could sail on a boat was if they did it themselves. So an all-female crew seemed to me you know, a perfectly sensible thing to do. Paul Stanbridge, who was one of the guys on Atlantic Privateer, was the first person I ever told. And, you know, he's a roughy-tufty ocean sailor. He said, I think if anyone could do it, it would be you. But I don't think a bunch of girls can sail around the world. It was an interesting process finding the crew. That, well, actually, they found us. It, as soon as the word got out, this North female crew sailing around the world, we were inundated. So we had to be pretty ruthless because we, we couldn't get this wrong. If we screwed this up, you know, it would be an anchor around every woman's neck forever. 
you know, we were looking for a really high calibre of, of sailor, but then also they had to have a skill to have a doctor, electrician, engineer, sailmaker. In the end, I didn't have a British crew. I had to find women from all over the world because women didn't have the experience. So we, we found this amazing team of women, and then I ended up being the skipper because there was no one else. I was going to put the project together, raise the money, and be the navigator. I was going to pick a skipper because I was under no illusions as to the level of my experience. And it does make me laugh now when I think back to, you know, these huge sailing rock stars who are going, who the hell does she think she is? Now I look back at it, I think, of course they were saying that. You were a cook, you know, who'd done one round the world race. But I just never, I never saw it like that. It seemed to me perfectly reasonable. <laughs> It's hard for me to explain to you the absolute surety that people had that we couldn't sail this boat around the world and, and that we would die. I mean, apart from getting onto Atlantic Privateer as a, as a girl, I had to be a cook and everything else, I'd never really experienced misogyny or sexism in chartering because I was always where I should be, in the galley. It was only when I stepped out of that role that I realised, oh, oh, blimey. And it was a real surprise. Various things would happen. I had oil pulled on my lawn. What was that? Phone calls, they were weird. Not, not so much threatening, just horrible, horrible stuff. And people did actually write to the organisers of the race and say that they didn't think that we should be allowed to enter. The things people wrote about us in the newspaper and magazines, someone was outrageous. Um, Bob Fisher with his famous quote, they're just a tin full of tarts. One article said that because of my lack of experience, I'd end up killing them all and it would be my fault. And I thank every single one of those journalists from the bottom of my heart because the nastier the stuff they wrote was, the more determined we became. And I often do wonder if everyone had just turned around to me and said, oh, that sounds like a good idea, off you go, if I'd have thought, no, I'll go and do something else. <laughs> So it was just a constant nipping away. And every time we achieved something, it was belittled. We never seemed to get to a point where people go, I think they've proved they can do it. Dealing with negativity in the build-up to the start made me realise that I'm an incredibly bloody-minded person. I realised that I was having a battle that I didn't know I was having. And I thought... OK, it's going to be difficult. People aren't going to want girls in the, you know, the boys' club. But it was the realisation that genuinely people didn't think we could do it. And then I went home to see my mum and I said, what do you think? And she said, I think if you put your mind to it, you could do it. But you would have a responsibility to the people that had joined the team because it's not just you, it's other people's lives. I thought, no, I've got to do this. This has got to be done. And I still don't understand what it was that drove me, but something did and it wouldn't let me go. It was so difficult to get the funding for Maiden. One of my favourite letters is from a guy who said, Dear Miss Edwards, thank you so much for offering us this opportunity. However, if you all die, it will be really bad publicity for my company. <laughs> we got little bits and pieces of sponsorship, but no one wanted to put their name to the project. In desperation, I called King Hussein and said, We're not going to get to the start line. I cannot get us any further. He just said, right, that's it. You can do it. We're going to fund it. Royal Jordanian Airlines will be your sponsor. 
I remember so many people saying, Arab Airline, sponsoring a team of women. Don't get it. But of course, he was a visionary. We prepared probably better than a lot of the male teams. There started to be the understanding that sleep patterns could really affect how the crew performed, nutrition, exercise. And we embraced it wholeheartedly because we felt for us as an all-female crew, here was a huge advantage. Here were a load of blokes stuck in their ways. And here was us knowing nothing and going, let's find out all this new stuff. Our lack of experience, we turned into an advantage because what we lacked in brute strength and weight, we made up for in stamina because, of course, women have more stamina than men. Women survive longer on mountains than men. Uh, we also survive longer in life rafts, which is rather good to know. So two things we did, for instance, were instead of having a winch, we put what are called grinders on the boat, which is a pedestal which stands upright with two handles that come out of the side. So you're almost pedaling with your hands right over the pedestal, and that's where your strength comes from. Because we don't have the strength to take down a big spinnaker in a big blow, we designed a, a pulled-out blast reacher, which is basically a, a sail which you can put out to the side and put a spinnaker pole onto it. It's a, a stable and effective way of sailing the boat. So our weakness actually ended up as a strength. We had such an advantage when we got to the start line because we had spent two years battling everything to get there. You know, we hadn't just been employed to go sailing on a boat that had loads of money and good wages and a nice uniform and just turn up and go. We had rebuilt the boat. We had found her. We managed to persuade some guy to stick her on his ship and bring her back to the UK. You know, we had taken her apart. We'd rebuilt her. We made the floorboards. You know, we did everything. And we did it with no money. I think it was this struggle, that this relentless, ongoing struggle, which built us into the team that we needed to be. So when we crossed the start line, we were already way ahead of all the other teams. It was like we'd already done two or three legs. From day one, we wanted to win. It's hard to put into words how important I thought it was to do well on this race. And this is what really galls me about some of the background commentary. It says, oh, you know, the girls, they're trying to get round in one piece, you know, and oh, bless, they're trying as hard as they can. You do not sail around the world and put that much effort and time and, and get that wet, cold, miserable doing something unless you want to win. If we didn't succeed, the next woman that came after us would have to fight not only her own battle, but ours as well. And we would have totally let her down. You know, we had to be the foundation upon which everyone else could build. We couldn't fail. We just couldn't. So no pressure there. That is a huge responsibility for Tracy and her team to bear. What I really like about Tracy's story is that you can really clearly hear her talk about belief systems. So beliefs that she holds about herself, um, beliefs that others hold about her, beliefs that others hold about women, their capacity to be sailors and to do this well. Beliefs are incredibly potent and incredibly powerful in terms of the actions that we take um, and the levels of resilience that we are able to demonstrate. And I think for Tracy, she could have held a belief system that I'm no good at maths. I've not been any good at school. I won't be any good at sailing or navigation. I won't put myself forward for that. 
But what I really like about her story is that every time she's given an opportunity to learn something new, to try and push and test herself that little bit further, she takes it. And it seems like she was able to surround herself with some people who gave her that opportunity to enable her to feel a belief in herself and experience that belief in herself. Uh, What were your thoughts on that first bit? I think there probably aren't many school dropouts that um, end up sailing around the world, particularly um, in such an unusual sort of situation, the first set up the first female crew. And you almost wonder if she hadn't been a school dropout, if that would have happened. Mm -hmm. It was almost like that really made her wake up and realise um, something. So I'm really fascinated by that because, you know, a lot of kids that are doing amazing at school that then go on to doubt themselves the rest of their lives. And she says you can always do more than you think you can. Yeah. Which I think is such a fascinating sentence because you think you don't really know what you can do, but she just keeps taking that. Yeah. And sort of running with it and seeing where she gets. Yeah. We'd all reach a greater potential, I'm sure, if we had that mindset. It's like she's owning the fact that we cap ourselves and yeah. she's and she's rejecting it and saying, <laughs> let's go a little bit further with that. I, I think that's key. I mean, I think I think if you look at the psychological research around this area on on self-limiting beliefs or or fear avoidance, because mm-hmm. we all I think most of us, uh, I would probably say all of us, with the exception perhaps of a few narcissists, have self-limiting beliefs. And so we think we can do that because we, we've done it before, whether that's playing football or, you know, being good on a mountain bike or whatever. But I couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. And this, this sort of creates a contract in our head. You can do this, but you can't do that. And this internal contract is then able to drive what we do and we don't do. Mm-hmm. I think what Tracy highlights for me uh, is two bits. One is cognition. And I think that's helped by her mentors who are saying, yes, you can, because she shows aptitude and ability and she's encouraged and supported. But the big shift, I think, is the behavioral experiments. She does things. Now, if you don't do things, you never discover you can do them. And I think what she does is she gets this cognitive shift because of the support, the mentoring, the friendship, the connection. She develops self belief and then she does it. I think there's a, a feature for me about the boat, there's something, there's a, there are very few nice words in psychiatry, but there's a word called egosyntonic, mm-hmm. which is when you do something that seems to nourish your spirit, it feels good, it feels the right thing to be doing. Yeah. And there's something about the boat that just resonates with Tracy and she suddenly feels, I can do this, this is me, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And I think that that's almost pivotal, I think, for her. She then starts on a new journey. Another thing that comes through quite strongly is her sense of commitment, her sense of purpose to the kind of enduring legacy of this. So she's not just thinking about, wouldn't it be great if um, we were the first female crew to be able to kind of enter this race and do well. She's thinking about the future generations of women sailors that are coming along after her. And actually, how if we get this wrong, we will confirm that bias and that assumption that has been held for years and years and years that women can't do this. So she has this real sense of responsibility to her peers on the boat in terms of their safety, keeping them well. But she also has this kind of overriding sense of responsibility to future generations of sailors and, and to women as well to say, no, we we can do this and we're going to go about doing this in the right way, which is a huge burden to take on, actually. Mm. Yeah. And I think when we think about resilience, we need something to hold on to during those times of adversity and challenge. We need something to anchor ourselves to, to say, this is the reason why I'm going to show that perseverance, Mm. that grit. Mm. I'm going to keep going. 
The Southern Ocean is a serious ocean. It's not mucking around. You've come down through the roaring 40s, screaming 60s. So you've been building up almost like a tolerance level. <laughs> Waves are getting bigger, longer, rolling. And then when a front comes through, yes, they do get huge. I mean, really unbelievably massive, 40 to 50 feet. But as long as you're not going against them, you are part of them, and you do become part of your environment. It's, um, it's not as shocking as it sounds. I think when you're on a round-the-world race, it's the relentlessness of the living conditions that you're in. And when, in particular, you're in the Southern Ocean, it is the relentlessness of the fear. And that's an extraordinary process to go through. You are deteriorating physically anyway, because as soon as you cross the start line, you start to lose weight. You're cold, your joints ache. It's minus 30, minus 40 degrees below freezing. Everything becomes difficult. Getting up becomes difficult. Going to bed, getting dressed, getting undressed, brushing your teeth, not brushing your teeth. And when the boat's really moving around, you're tense the whole time physically. So you're dealing with that. You are desperate to win. You're desperate to live. You're desperate not to let your team down. You are also fighting this fear element a lot of the time. And there comes a point where it's just too much. If you're feeling low when you're on a boat sailing around the world, you, you can't <laughs> be. Well, you can be for about five minutes or in the privacy of your bunk or whatever. But the great thing about an all-female crew is that we all take care of each other. Women are so perceptive. You don't really have that much chance to be down before someone's got their arm around you going, cup of tea, little chat. So on that particular leg, on the second leg, we were, I guess, probably halfway, quite far south, and Crichton's naturally had had a problem. They were a bigger boat than us in another class. We'd actually caught up to them and uh, overtaken them. So we were the closest boat to them. Their single sideband radio failed to work, and they just had a VHF radio. So they called for help, and we were the only boat that could hear them. Someone's gone over the side, and can you ask your doctor what we do, he's suffering from hypothermia. Bart van den never forgotten his name. He was in the water, I think, for 20 minutes, which is an unimaginable length of time. Luckily for them, Claire, our doctor, had put all their medical kit on the boat, numbered it, and she had a list. So she sat for two days on the radio and kept him alive. But we had the sense there was someone else, but we couldn't quite get to grips with it. And in the end, John Chittenden, the skipper, said to me, actually, two people went over the side. But Anthony Phillips, when we pulled him um, back on board, he was dead. I mean, to even retrieve them was extraordinary seamanship. We then had to relay that message back to the race office. And we were there, sort of eyes and ears, really, for two days. And then get the message back from his parents that he should be buried at sea. It really brings you back down to earth with a very big thud and you suddenly feel very mortal. I mean, it is exhilarating and you love the sailing and it's fantastic, but utterly terrifying. And by the time you've done seven weeks, you really can't wait to get to the next stopover. When we won the second leg coming into Australia, it was, oh, it was a deep joy that I had never, ever experienced before. 
We were all trying very hard not to be ungracious. There was a lot of us thinking, how dare you think we couldn't do this? And we absolutely thrashed you. And it wasn't as if we just won. You know, I think the Spree de Liberté was 36 hours behind us, you know. And we did actually make a point of going down to the dock the next day to welcome them in. <laughs> um, for me, the joy was not just what I felt, but it was watching the people around us who'd believed in us. It just felt like coming into a place that we knew we belonged. Every part of being an all-female crew, not just on the boat, but on land, is a different dimension. It was the strength of our friendship and our you know, camaraderie that kept us together. And our immediate competitors in our class were quite derogatory. Whereas the big maxis who were not racing against us were very complimentary. And they were sort of looking at us going, blimey girls, really well done. So we'd won a big, heavy, full-on leg. We needed to win a tactical leg to show that that wasn't a fluke and we can do all different types of sailing. So when we came first into New Zealand, Fisher and Peichel and Steinlager, the big maxis, got onto one of the press boats. I think they hijacked it. As we sailed across the start line, they were all aligned along the deck singing, there she was, just a walking down the street, singing do <laughs> And that's when we thought, yeah, I think we've made it. Cape Horn, everyone looks forward to. You are going from one weather system to another, you're going from one ocean to another, and a lot of weather is being funneled through to land masses. So you're either going to get really great sailing weather or something really, really horrible. There's very little in between. By the time we got to Cape Horn, I'd panicked, I think, and overthought our strategy, and I'd put us in a really not great place. We were coming out of the Southern Ocean at a very steep angle. So we'd lost a lot of time, but we did know that once we came up round the corner, we might be able to redeem something out of this. But it was kind of a little bit like a mill pond with a few breaths of wind, you know, blowing into the sails. Got round Cape Horn, oh my God, and then all hell broke loose. So what we had was a front coming through and we just went straight into it. You can't sail into the wind, but you're trying to sail very close to it because that's where you want to go. But it's a sort of a, oh, it's a risk. When you're beating into wind, when you're bashing your brains out, you're hurting the boat. When you come off the wind slightly, you're not going fast and you're not going where you need to go. And I just said, should we go for it? And everyone went, yeah, let's just go for it. Worst few days of everyone's life. I'm not normally seasick once I get into the rhythm of the boat, but wow. And I was in the navigation station one night and I thought I heard water. And then I looked down and there was water sloshing up over the floorboards. And within minutes, we were like, oh God, okay, it's up to the first bunk. So we were ripping floorboards up. We couldn't find this leak anywhere. Oh my goodness. We could not figure it out. The bilge pump stopped working because the generator had been overwhelmed by seawater. Couldn't start the engine. There's a great saying, which is, there is no bilge pump like a bucket in the hands of a frightened sailor. The speed those buckets were going up. I was getting a lot of, what do you think, is everything going to be okay? And at first I was like, yeah, it's fine. It's not that much water and this is an aluminium boat. You know, it's, she's not going to delaminate, she's not going to crack up. And then I thought, actually, I'm not an expert. My opinion is my opinion. I cannot categorically say we are in a nasty position. There are farcical moments on boats when you're very scared because it's almost like you can't cope and you have to laugh. 
We had the life rafts in lockers in the cockpit. I didn't want to tell anyone I was looking at the life rafts. It had scared the living daylights out of everyone. Then we discovered when we tacked over that the boat emptied out and stopped filling up. There was a crack in one side of the mast as we were pounding into the weather so this water had been pouring in. So we got to the point where we could manage it, got the bilge pumps working, and then just battled our way up to Uruguay. Once you're in survival mode, you almost stop thinking. You know, you just get on with it because you have to. I didn't take the laugh rafts out. That could have been a catastrophic decision. But I think if I had taken them out, everyone would have panicked. I think we'd have taken our eyes off what we were supposed to be doing, which was getting the water out of the boat. But you have to make decisions as they are at the time. Throw most people into a situation like that, people get on with it because you don't want to die. You deal with what you have to deal with. And that kind of takes your mind off the dying bit. You know, it's, it's much more practical. It's afterwards that you realise that, oh, that was a bit close. We found there was four hairline fractures and we kind of sourced them out in Uruguay, did a bit more work in them in Fort Lauderdale. Probably not as much as we should have done because then we beat a loss on the final leg and again we were a little bit, just a little bit worried about it. And I remember a conversation coming up to the Grand Banks. Now that's where Titanic went down. When the icebergs come far south, they can be almost more treacherous than the Southern Ocean because they're smaller. You don't see them. So you hit one of those. I mean, that, that's the job done. I wanted to take the Great Circle route and go straight through the iceberg um, field. And we knew they were quite far south. I remember coming up on deck and saying to the girls, so how likely do you think the statistics are that we would hit an iceberg? And one of the girls went, well... I guess if you were looking for like a little island in the ocean, you'd never find it, you'd never hit it. So why don't we just apply that logic to the situation we're in now? And I went, okay, so should we just go for it? And everyone went, yeah, let's just go for it. You sort of reach that point where you're so used to living with that element of risk and fear that it's just become the norm. You override the sensible bit of your head, which is telling you, are you listening to yourself? This is really stupid conversation. We were really ready to finish the race, but we didn't want to get there because we didn't want to get off the boat. But I do remember that in particular coming up to the finish. It was just such an emotional day, but it was also a very quiet day. It was almost like we said everything we needed to say over nine months and, wow, we could talk. I mean, that finish was just unimaginable. Even though we knew we hadn't won, we'd come second. It was just the best day of my life. One of the greatest lessons I learned on Maiden, it was so great to have a, a team of women. It, it was... Just an amazing experience. People said to me after the race, oh, come on, you must have argued. We actually didn't argue. We discussed. We would disagree, but we didn't really argue. I think women, girls would hear, girls don't get on. Where does that come from, that saying? I think that is the saying made up by men to really prevent groups of women getting together because we're so scary when we get together. Now, what are they plotting? What are they doing? What are they saying? <laughs> what do they think they can do? Maiden took an awkward, random person trying to find their way in the world and made her into someone who understood the direction in which she was going and why, with people who she adored. Maiden 
made me who I am. Okay, wow. There's so much in that story. There's so much in it. I think one of the things that I find really baffling, I think it's because I've got such a fear of water, (laughs) but (laughs) is is how they were able to override the absolute fear. You know, so they're talking about 40 to 50 foot waves. They're talking about some extreme weather fronts and how they're able to override that to enable them to do the things that they need to be able to do. I find it absolutely fascinating. And we do a lot of work at Positive looking at that link between your thoughts, your feelings, your behavior and your physiology. But where you have emotions that are so fearful, this is about survival. And, you know, she talks about there's real gravity here. They talk about the time on the other boat where they had to provide assistance and Claire, their doctor, provides assistance for someone who's gone overboard and then actually someone's lost their life. How do you then continue to override that fear when you know that actually this is really serious. So I might have strategies in place for enabling me to override this fear, but it's very real. It's very valid. Actually, maybe I should be focusing on this fear. I think she talks about survival mode. And mm-hmm. I think um, I think you can train the brain to get better at that. I think you can bring in your prefrontal cortex and be able to dampen down your emotional brain. And what does your prefrontal cortex do, Ryan? Well, they think, there's very good data actually, <laughs> that, that that your prefrontal cortex is, is a sort of um, executive, but it also has the ability to dampen down emotions. This is okay. Kipling's concept of if you can keep your head when all about are losing theirs. So the, the, the prefrontal cortex seems to have a dampening effect on emotional distress. And um, you can train the brain to get better at doing that. So I think what a lot of these people do is use imaginal exposure or they actually have experiences where they have coped and then they have this initial fear and then they're able to bring in this uh, sort of calming executive that says, okay, this is difficult, but this is what we need to do here. Mm. But I think what comes across very powerfully, as you said, and you know, just hearing about people dying and then and then having this desperate thing with a leaking boat and water and thumping into these huge waves and she still manages to hold on to that concept we're going to get through this I think it's interesting that obviously she does have to override fear at the extreme I mean these waves were 10 times taller than I am I was trying to think of like buildings in London of which are 50 foot but I know it's high um, my sense good. Of, that's good working idea my, <laughs> my sense of yeah spatial isn't great but um, it's interesting because she seemed to have the scarier things got she got this real clarity of thought so this like her t- attention was just purely in survival mode when people are in these life-threatening situations you do often hear them referring to this really objective view of the situation because given how emotions are primal and it's unusual to be in a situation which is that stressful without emotion to actually have that clarity of thought in spite of that I think that's really interesting and I think as well what 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 struck me was her as a leader she demonstrates amazing leadership at this time because she talks about looking at the lifeboats and thinking should I get these out or should I not Um, And actually, she's very close to that point where the sensible thing to do would be to get them out and make sure that they've got access to the to the rafts. But she chooses not to. 
because she feels that that will evoke fear and panic in the others. So she's got this sense of responsibility to monitor her own emotions, thoughts, actions in a way that will um, increase the confidence of her teammates. And I think what's really nice about what she says about that is that's a really effective strategy for her supporting them. But then it becomes this virtuous circle where they feed back into her. So they kind of get together to say when they're at that place where the Titanic went down, let's give this a go. Yeah, let's we, we're going to make this decision together to give this a go. So they've mm. been able to kind of learn from an, her her kind of reaction to modeling how she handles that fear it's very real everyone knows the stakes everyone knows how serious it is but actually we've been able to kind of learn from what we've done so far we're still here let's go for this and let's kind of come together to do this so i think that it it creates that really nice circle mutually beneficial exactly yeah what do you think brian i i I mean i think you're right i i think that um the extraordinary thing about uh her is that she she actually asks them you know, should we go for it? And yeah. yes, let's go for it. So I think there's a there's a sense that uh, there was fear, but then they start to be able to cope with the fear, and they're even taking risks because they decide as a team we can take this risk. Mm-hmm. And that cohesion and that decision, I think, is incredibly powerful. She decides to end it by talking about how this experience, being part of a team, was actually the most important thing. So. It's not what they achieved, but that they achieved it together and that really strong sense of belonging and working together. So she doesn't seem in any way kind of egotistical about what they've achieved. It is very much a team effort. And I love that that part where she says, you know, if you, you, you don't have the option to feel down when you're there. So it's pretty relentless. You're wet, you're cold, all the physiological stuff that's going on is hard enough to, to manage. So if your emotions come down and get stuck down that can be really detrimental so I love that bit where she says you know about someone putting their arm around you noticing you giving you a cup of tea um, I love that cup yeah. of tea little chat little chat I thought I could do that all the time yeah <laughs> <laughs> but it's those little things isn't it that make such a difference and really yeah. f- make you feel like you belong you're part of you're connected yeah. one of the sad things I think in our individualistic society is we don't support mentor and coach each other to fulfill our potential. And the idea of someone putting their arm around you and saying, no, I think you can do this and, you know, have a go. And if it doesn't work out, we'll have another look and keep that support, I think, can help people fulfill their potential. Winning formula. Absolutely. Mm. So in this episode, we've asked the question, how does self-belief and the support of others help build resilience? So we know that there are a range of protective factors linked to resilience. And I just wanted to pick out a few of Tracy's key protective factors. So she demonstrates that she's got really good mentors and a good support network that she values and respects. She also has this openness to trying new things. So when an opportunity presents itself to her, she goes for it. And finally, she's got such a strong sense of purpose. And we know that that is really protective in the face of adversity. What I've taken away from this is social support being um, sort of this medium through which a lot of people either can express sort of sadness or happiness. You sort of share happiness with Mm -hmm. others and it magnifies it. Or sometimes you share that sadness with others and that allows you to process things. And I think the ways that social support are protective aren't always apparent. People can isolate themselves in different ways and they're losing that opportunity for that cup of tea little chat. So there were some of the things that on a personal level, really, I really related to. I think one of the key things about the story actually is 
you could reflect back and say, yes, we achieved this amazing feat. We must have shown resilience. But what she's really good at doing is pinpointing the things that helped with that resilience. So it's almost as if when she tells herself the story of what happens, she's holding on to the the parts that were really helpful for her. She's holding on to her relationships with other people. She's holding on to her mentors. She's holding on to the fact that they were there for each other. And that's what got them through that difficult period. And I think that in terms of resilience is one of the key things. It's not mm. just getting through it. It's not just surviving and adapting, but it's identifying the things that did get you through it. And I think that comes through really powerfully for Tracy. She seems very reflective and she almost... Um, it seems almost as if she has a smile on her face when she's telling this story and she's and she's kind of uh, recounting these different conversations and events that happened. So I really love that about it. It's not just that I did this, but actually I remember the things that made this successful. Her story is is really symbolic for a lot of human beings. And I think the danger is that we stay with these self-limiting beliefs and we don't do the experiments. Mm-hmm. We don't try things out. We don't discover Uh, our own potential. And I think, as she said, you know, we often underestimate our own capacity to deal with these things. And I think that's the recurrent message here, um, that self-belief and have a go, see how it pans out, and then you gain more confidence, and then you build on that confidence. Mm -hmm. And it's a journey of incremental gain. When everyone around you is telling you that you can't do something, often the only person who can challenge those, the only person who can prove them wrong is you yourself. Having listened to Tracy's story, what's really stood out is how having a strong sense of purpose and self-belief can help you overcome almost anything. And in the words of Nietzsche, Brian? If you can work out a why, you can work out almost any how. So if you have that strong sense of purpose, you can overcome the things that come your way. Absolutely. The Resilient Road was brought to you by Positive Group and Radio Wolfgang. It was presented by me, Sinead Divine French, with Brian Marion and Elle Crush, and featured Tracy Edwards. It was produced by Holly Aquilina. The editors were Eli Block and Holly Aquilina. It was sound designed by Elle Scott, and the executive producer was Harry Watson. For more information about Positive Group and the work that we do, go to www.positivegroup.org.